This is Anya Leonard and Alex Barrientos, and you are listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. We are talking about the paradox of Theseus. And I guess we should probably start with a review of what is this paradox and why is it named after the Greek hero's ship? So, yeah, the Greek, the paradox of Theseus's ship comes from Plutarch's uh, Lives of Theseus, where he describes uh, how Theseus's ship is uh, taken over or it's just kept Oh God, what is it? No. He had a battle and after the battle, they, they moored it in a harbor so as a museum piece. Yeah, right. And then, of course, slowly the pieces are rotting and they need to change them out. And so plank by plank, the ship is replaced. And then the question arises, and, and Plutarch is sort of reporting this to us, but the question arises, is the ship in the harbor still Theseus's ship? And the question gets translated to us today in, in topics about personal identity that due to the fact that our bodies are constantly, you know, growing and changing and, and the fact that we, sh- we don't realize it, but we shed old skin and, you know, millions of particles are falling off from us and even our psychology and memory changes over time. The question has come up in, in, in topics about personal identity, whether or not and to what extent we're the same person that we were yesterday or 10 years ago or 15 years ago, et cetera. Now, the, the ancients loved to talk about this. And uh, Heraclitus, Heraclitus, everyone, <laughs> uh, he, I think he wrote about it with regards to his old river. You know, you never step in the same river twice because both rivers change and both you have changed. Um, and that's always a good point, too, because you think what makes a river a river? The water coming in and it's constantly changing. Is it still the same river? Can you call it the Mississippi if every time you look at it, each water molecule is a different water molecule than was there 10 seconds before? So I guess it's what makes A equal A, like what makes something something. Exactly. So yeah, and I, I should probably elaborate a bit. So the, the problem of personal identity is is exactly that. Are you the exact person that you were yesterday? And if not, why not? And so, you know, there's a lot of different theories about this. And most people like to think that, well, I'm the same person because I remember what I did yesterday. But what were to happen if you all of a sudden lost your memory? Let's say a sudden case of amnesia due to a fall or something like that. You wouldn't want to then say that the person who wakes up with that amnesia is no longer you, right? Your family still remembers you and you're in the same body but you're no longer there, or at least the memories that you had of yesterday are no longer there. So now there seems to be this issue of, of a split between who you were yesterday and now who you are today. And, and we don't even have to go as extreme as amnesia. Like our own memories are just really not that good. I mean, we really don't remember things. And there's the amount of times, and they've done so many studies on this too, that like people think that they remember something very clearly, but you know, you're like, where were you at nine, on 9-11 or something like that? And then when they actually fact check it, you could have such a clear memory and it wasn't true at all. You know, you talk to your parents, you're like, there's no way you could have seen it from that window. We actually lived in this street at that time. Or, you know, our, our memories are just not 
very reliable at all. So even knowing that, how can we be who we are if our memories we can't can't be trusted? Exactly. Yeah. And so there's this, and I think Theseus's ship is a really great way of getting that across because just as the parts of our bodies are constantly being renewed and, and switched out by these biological processes, our memories come and go. And as you even say, are sometimes not even true in the first place. Uh, and, and this just creates a huge problem for how we can even come to say that it, it, this ties in a lot to, you know, notions of responsibility. To what extent am I responsible for things I did 10 years ago if I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I even thought about the implications. But I, before we get on to the implications, I want to just address the biological issue because, you know, they say every seven to 10 years, our cells completely regenerate kind of thing. Um, but I do want to clarify that different cells regenerate at different rates. So your skin might be every two weeks, I think it is. And like the fuzz on your hair, strangely enough for women, it takes six years to, for that to regenerate fully, but men three years, I don't know. Bizarre. Hmm. Yeah. I know. <laughs> um, your liver, I think it's only like 150 days to 500 days for anybody who wants a proper detox. Um, but actually some of the cells in your brain, specifically neurons and the ones that surround um, like the mycelin sheath and all that kind of stuff. Those can mm -hmm. last your entire lifetime. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So that I think when we, we like to project the idea of our bodies changing so much and, but I mean, we do have some reader mail, for instance, where somebody said, um, I think it was, uh, Nicola. She's like, her answer is we cannot be compared to a ship only because we have a brain while well, a ship doesn't and we are our brain. So if I cut my, if I go to the barber shop, he cuts my hair, I'm still myself, you know, but if you take out my brain and place it in a box, you know, then my brain is wherever that box is. So, I mean, that's, that is an important distinction, I suppose, between us and a ship is, is we do have a brain and us and, and water. That is, if those neurons are existing forever, they're, that could be identified. And those neurons are associated with memory and consciousness that, that could be a solid thing. Yeah, this actually really interestingly gets to uh, issues of, and this goes back to ancient Greece with the materialism versus dualist accounts of, of human beings, right? And so you, what, what this points out is on a materialist conception right a conception in which everything uh well, at least in, in terms of personal identity what makes you you is the material body that constitutes you what you're saying would be a really big blow to that because you could point out well hey there are certain parts of you that do seem more resilient to change and so maybe there is something that continues on um and what the reader pointed out in, in that email seems to suggest that well yeah, you have this physical body, but no matter how much that changes, there's something more permanent within you, right? Whether it's your brain or your mind or your soul that sticks around. And that is an interesting point to make, but it's not without its own problems. Uh, simply for the fact that now you have to rely on some type of continuity of, of a person's psychology to say, oh, that's you the whole time. Because you wouldn't just want to say that that lump of, of pink stuff in your head is what makes you you. because you know, if you were, if that is sitting in a jar, you want to, if it, it would be tantamount to saying to looking at the jar that the brain is in and saying, well, there, there I am. 
and you wouldn't want to say that because you were also, you know, if you put your brain into my body, I wouldn't want to say, hey, there's Anya because you're looking at me and, and I'm not you. And there's a whole lot that goes with that. Yeah, well, we would be a strange combination. That would be- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, I mean, I, my, my only point being that it does, I, I think it's a common, I've noticed this in courses where we've taught personal identity that the common response is, well, there's something deeper within me, you know, it's my, my soul that that's permanent and that doesn't change. So that's who I am, but that's that it doesn't come without its own issues because you have to perhaps locate it somewhere. And it, that's also not to say that the soul doesn't change itself, right? Our, our thoughts, beliefs, ideas, those all change. And, and that constitutes a very large part of us. Huge. Um, I'm going to add another reader mail here from Jesse uh, who I think comments on this too, is I have been reading Aristotle's ethics and much of this most excellent study revolves around your questions. Uh, Thus far, it seems that who I am consists of what I do rather than what I say. Uh, And I think most people who do read Aristotle quite regularly will will remember that, um, yeah, we are the result of our habits and our actions and the things that we do every day again and again, and that those can change and and we can evolve and and as you say the the things that we do when we're younger might be completely different than the things that we do when we're older and if that determines who we are then we are can be a completely different person yeah so i so let's say this is a really good point because let's say you know theseus's ship is defined by the fact that it belongs to theseus right it's the ship that theseus commands and that he uses and 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 sails around uh you know the mediterranean sea now let's say that you know that same ship even with all its new planks if theseus is still the one commanding it and and using it for the same purposes as the old ship you would still say that's theseus's ship however if that ship is repurposed and given to someone else and now that person uses it let's say as a trade ship to go to china and, and 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 sell products and goods now it would seem like we could say that that's a different ship, right? Now it has all new parts and, and what it's being used for or its purpose has changed. That seems like perhaps a good candidate. And I think, it go, you know, it, what defines a ship is what it does or what it's used for. And so long as it, was, as it belonged to Theseus and was used for Theseus's purposes, we could say it was Theseus's ship. But the moment it stops becoming that, perhaps that's when it becomes something different. And, and the same for us. I, you know, I think it's interesting to, um, if you were to take this out of just the realm of the personal and move it into sort of communities and cultures and things, that you can say something is the same by a level of continuity, even though it changes dramatically. So you could say, okay, you are an American. What makes an American? You know, um, what was defined as being an American in Nathaniel Hawthorne's day was probably extremely different than, than what it is today. Um, I always like to think of that uh, experiment with the monkeys and the ladder and the bananas. You know that one? Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to say for those who are listening, um, basically, and quick, jump in if, I, if I'm misremembering it since my memory clearly is so valuable. Uh, you, <laughs> you've, got a, you've got a ladder and um, a bunch of monkeys. And at the top of the ladder is a banana. So the monkey climbs up the ladder, gets to eat a banana, whoop, whoop, toes down, tells the other banana, I mean, the other monkeys that there's a banana there. So the monkeys, you know, keep going up the banana, up the ladder, sorry. And yeah. then one day they swap the banana for 
an electric shock. And the monkey goes up, he gets shocked, he comes down the ladder, tells the rest of the monkeys, don't go up there, you know, you'll get shocked. And eventually, none of the monkeys want to go up the ladder for obvious reasons. Then they take away the electric shock, and the monkeys, one by one, are replaced. And so, at one point, you would imagine a monkey would want to try to go up the ladder. Maybe now there's a banana, but they don't. They forever remember, even though at, eventually there are none of the same monkeys that were there when the electric shock was there, they still don't go up the ladder. And so, mm. it's interesting to think that if you were to use that as sort of a metaphor for culture, that the sustained memory or myth of something gives it its identity or the continuity that makes it identifiable. And that, that you could think of, hey, look what we're doing with the classics. Like that is maintaining a continuity of culture or history or mythology. Um, and that maintains it. It's so true and almost scary to think about how different today, when we think of this figure, Plato or Aristotle or whoever, how the way we think about them is probably so radically different from the way that maybe someone in Renaissance Italy thought about them or someone in medieval Europe thought about them. And, you know, going for, you know, I'm sure Socrates contemporaries did not think as highly of him as we do. And, no, he right? sounds like he was really annoying. I'm sure yeah. he was not... Right. Beloved and, in the same way. No. And you're and I think that's just a really great point. How much our you know, perhaps during even during our own lives, our, our identity is shaped by the people around us and how they view us. And and it is I I think something that uh we tend to overlook because we are so wrapped up in how we view ourselves that there's also this almost even a second identity being formed about us by others and which will be sustained by them after we're gone. That, that actually brings me perfectly to another reader mail that said, we are always three in one. The person we see in the mirror, the person we show others, and the person we think we are. The trick is making them all the same one. And I, that's exactly to your point. Wow. Yeah. Sit on that for a second. That's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Plato would agree. He would just agree it's the same person, right? You know, Plato has the, the tripartite soul. Um, right. And there's a sense in which there's three parts within us. But it is interesting to think about almost three different persons entirely in one um, and making those cohere. Uh, certainly not easy to do. Well, and the other part, too, is like how we view ourselves versus how others see us is mm. so radically different. And we are biased by our own abilities, cognitive abilities, and, and senses to be able to take in information. So you even think of um, how your voice sounds. And we, every single time you hear your voice in a recording, it sounds totally different than it does in your head. And there's a scientific reason for that because you're hearing echoes inside your head. I mean, it, it's going through different pathways. Same way, like when you look in the mirror, you think you recognize yourself, but you're never seeing a true reflection of how you look because of the way the reflection is, you know, it's, yeah. it's only, and you know, that weird moment when you look in one of those mirrors, like in an optical illusion museum or something like that, or science museum. And, and then you see actually your true reflection as people see you and you're like, Whoa, I don't look like yeah. that. That looks weird. I like, <laughs> yep. it throws you. 
definitely. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, I, again, this is probably one of my favorite topics. And I think, you know, students in the philosophy classes I've been in have also enjoyed it a lot. And I'm, I'm glad that we got a lot of reader feedback. And I actually do want to direct, you know, some attention to one of the uh, more recent articles that came up uh, from, uh, I think it was Doug Bates who wrote on Pyro and the influence that Buddhism had on his philosophy. And one of the aspects that was gone over in the piece was this, this idea of there being no self, right? So we have all these mistaken notions about our, our personal identity, but then there's this, you know, there, there is a, a pretty large group uh, or large uh, philosophical movement that likes to view the self as non-existent, right? So this is popular in, in Pyro's philosophy, in Buddhism, uh, much later in philosophy, David Hume questioned this. And there's a sense in which not only are we mistaken, but we actually might, not only are we mistaken about who we are, but we're mistaken in even trying to ask if there's something permanent there. Because to these philosophers, there just clearly is not. Uh, there's nothing permanent that's sitting there for us to grasp. And every time we go for it, it's like quicksilver just slipping through our fingers. That's got to be a hard one to sell in our modern world to like give up the self because I feel like we spend a lot of time focusing on ourselves. I mean, we, we read self-help and we read self-care and we're all, you know, nowadays it's, it's about drinking your turmeric lattes and getting your drugs in and it's all about your, yourself. Um, so I don't know, how would you even, how could you have an identity with no self? I, it's kind of, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, well, and I think one of the, the, the selling points for this isn't so much the, the our, our, it's not so much appealing to our, our ability to, to comprehend it, because you're right, in, in a large respect, there'd be no way, I think, for the average person to carry on with that view in their everyday lives, because the minute you walk out the door, you are you, and you have people you need to meet who are looking for you and uh, you know so it, that that gets complicated but i think the main selling point of this view today at least is this almost morally therapeutic side to it where you become less self-absorbed and you become perhaps less narcissistic less selfish uh and there's i guess sup supposed to be these kind of moral moral enhancements that come along with it, right? So you become perhaps a little less humble, a little, not a little less, a little more humble, and maybe a little open to the idea that others might be right. Because I feel a lot of those, um, at, at least the theory goes, a lot of the defensive mechanisms that arise when we get in arguments with others or when we have some type of tension between someone that we disagree with is really just this self, this ego trying to fight back and preserve its, its beliefs and thoughts and ideas. And it doesn't want those to change because it's desperately trying to hold on to this permanence that isn't even really there. That is in, in a real sense, an illusion. And so that I think is one appealing aspect to it uh, as opposed to, yeah, a theory of the self that, you know, tries to posit something being there. You know what I like about it and, and I think you can't really fully ever lose the self, I suppose, unless you're, you know, living up in a mountaintop and you don't have to do anything and then you can just be one with nature. Um, but that you, you that the process of aiming towards that is valuable in and of itself. And I think overall that word, I think helps a lot in understanding this paradox um, of the ship is that 
we are works in progress, that our identities aren't a static thing, that it's not a museum piece, that we're not just a solid wooden ship, that we are always in the process of being renewed and regenerating. Um, and there's something very liberating in that because you're not expected to be this perfect example. And, um, and I think it's something I like to bring up with people too when it comes to, again, from the individual and to larger the society or community that societies and cultures are also continuously evolving and changing and that whatever your society and culture is, that also isn't supposed to be just in a museum, that you can accept new change and new peoples and new customs and that we're both at an individual and a societal level works in progress. Yeah, I think that's a really nice, uh, almost like middle ground between the two. Cause you don't, I, I, there's definitely part of me that pushes back against the idea of abolishing the self. Um, but there's also definitely a part that, uh, pushes back against this idea of something permanent that's always there. And I think this idea that we're constantly changing, but that there is something that's being changed is really helpful. And, and I think it also has those same like morally therapeutic benefits in that if you constantly see yourself as someone changing, you won't be scared of change. And, and this is something big for the Stoics, right? You know, Marcus Aurelius is constantly talking about the necessity of change in the world and how not only is the, the name of the game for nature change, but even in human life, that we should, it's not an evil, it's not something we should fear, it's something we should embrace. Yeah, and Heraclitus, again, you know, he's, he was always about change, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> that, that was his stick, right? Uh, yeah, and I guess right now, it would be super valuable too, because we're living in a world where things are changing dramatically, that the you know, we, everyone's throwing away, you know, the new normal as a new normal phrase <laughs> that, yeah. that we could just say, okay, life's just different now, or it will be. Mm -hmm. And how long will it be before it goes back? Or will it ever go back? Or will some of the things that have happened during this time period disrupt things forever? Well, of course, everything's always changing. And that's okay. Yeah. And I think if there's any, I mean, at least in my own writings for classical wisdom, I think one of the main threads that I've tried to tie into a lot of them is that it's okay to change and to be changed yourself, you know, and, and to be okay with the changes that happen around you. I tried to express this mainly in my pieces where I'm talking about the need for some type of civility or open-mindedness and tolerance, because you're right. If you don't have, if you're, if, if you're going to reject and be afraid of change, you're, you're going to butt heads with people and, uh, it's going to be difficult for you to move on and, and be okay with the fact that that is what just happens in the world. And that's how things go. It is the mark of an educated man to entertain an idea without accepting it. <laughs> yep. True, no, and true. It, it really is though. And it is, I mean, it's amazing when you get into debates with people that are unwilling to change their mind. Um, I think what, is there another, I want to say it's a Mark Twain quote that goes, no amount of evidence will convince an idiot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, it, well, that's a good point. Like, if you can't change your mind, that's saying something more about you than anybody else. Well, it, and it's been, it's, it is such a bizarre, you know, I, I don't like to make generalizations, but I feel like I've seen it, you know, uh, expressed in a variety of circumstances where I've heard this phrase, well, at least they stick to their guns or, 
at least they don't back down from what they say, or at least they've had that, you know, they, they back up their opinion and stick with it the whole time. And I'm like, that's just such a bizarre value system for me. I really don't uh, value that someone doesn't change their opinion over time. That would, it's almost scary to me to think of someone holding that view in spite of other competing views being lobbied against them and with good reasons. Right. I, yeah. Well, I think there's a caveat in there that, you know, the, the other things being thrown at them are worthwhile. So, um, yeah. this, this month's classical wisdom literary magazine is on statesmen. And, um, I was writing the editor's note and it, it going to, going into the history of statesmen and how a statesman is actually in fact the opposite of a politician because a politician will say anything to be elected or reelected to gain power over. And those are the people you really got to, you know, watch out for and not give power to. But a statesman as defined by Cicero is somebody who has core values, you know, integrity, virtue. And so maybe what is popular changes and they stick to their guns based on sound values and ethics and justice, morality, and that kind of good stuff. Um, And that, they're willing to change their mind if new evidence comes to light or if they need to, even if changing their mind is therefore unpopular. I think that's a really important caveat, yeah. So yeah, I mean, just, I think that the main point is, is doing what the philosophers do and trying to establish what is good, <laughs> what yeah. is moral, what is you? What is me? Like, you know, trying to figure out some of the core tenets of the most important questions that we need to ask um, and sticking to the good ones, I suppose. Yeah. And I, I, this kind of makes me wonder, you know, to what extent does personal, the questions about personal identity uh, get tied in with um, moral concerns, right? Because it does definitely seem that whatever your conception of personal identity will be will have certain moral implications and you know whether it's you know sticking to some type of core value perhaps or whether it's you know uh, theories about responsibility it does seem like whatever one's view on this will impact those other views significantly yeah well and and if part of who we are is the influence of others or the influence of other events that are outside of our control is there an element of us and who we are the result of not our own decisions. I, I, I lean towards saying yes, but it does seem like it would depend on some type of awareness of that. And perhaps that's not something that we all have at every moment. And so I think there's plenty of times where we had let our guard down and allow ourselves to become the victims of other people's whims and, and ideas and opinions. And I think this is, you know, this is very common in type in a, in a mob setting or some type of social setting where you know peer pressure can influence people, and you kind of yourself almost gets almost gets absorbed into like a common self, and that can definitely be problematic. And I, I think it's difficult to say whether there's something that's always there that pushes back against that, or if it's something that comes and goes. Well, I mean, even just going into something as even scientifically proven as language. So I've always kind of had a bit of a theory about this um, because, you know, I'm a third culture kid and I've grown up in various countries. And as I have had lots of other friends who've grown up in various different countries. And after a certain time period, 
it's really tricky to figure out where someone is from, like who you are and where you're from. Like for me, where are you from was like the worst question. I hated it. It, it, it resulted in a five minute response. Uh, it was infuriating because there wasn't a simple answer and people would get so mad at me that I couldn't just like give them a nice neat label. Uh, and it was very frustrating. Uh, and I remember thinking, you know, a lot of times you're defined in the end, people, passports can change, you know, modern diversity, your ethnicity doesn't really reflect anything. Your religion doesn't really reflect anything. Uh, but the way people will identify you, I think in the end is by your dialect or accent. Um, and, you know, you might be of Asian descent, but if you have a Glaswegian accent, people think you're from Glasgow, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> because you have to work very hard to get a Glaswegian accent. Um, <laughs> and so my point is, is that, is that the language is something we don't choose. It's, it's given to us as children by our community, but it hugely determines the way we think about things. And um, just bear with me one more moment. I know I'm on a bit of a ramble mode here, but the, um, for instance, is a, a perfect example with uh, regards to Spanish versus English. Um, if I accidentally knock over a glass, uh, in English, we have to say, I did it. I had, I'm culpable, even though it was an accident. But in Spanish, it, there's this great out, and you can just say, se rompió. It broke itself. Mm. And they've done tests on this. And, it, and Japanese is the same, actually, with Spanish. Um, where if you are an English speaker and you watch a video and you see a vase getting knocked over, you will remember who knocked it. But if you're a Spanish speaker, you won't remember who knocked it. The same degree, because the accountability isn't inherent. So imagine just the implications of that. So you have these if language is so part of our mind, we, we don't see a color until we have a label for it. You know, we, there's so many things. Language is, is instrumental to who we are. And that's something we don't choose. And we all grow up with different languages or different dialects and different slangs. Yeah, I, I think this is actually really important because now you have me thinking too about the, so you brought up, we have no control over what language we just happen to speak because we have uh, uh, no control over where we just happen to be born and what culture we have, you know, all these factors that are outside of our control, but which form such a large part of, of who we are. And I think that also just even in acknowledging that, I mean, you know, I, I there, there was that piece that I, I wrote on, on the stoic roots of cosmopolitanism. And one of the stoic arguments was, you know, you shouldn't take any sort of pride or, or have some, you know, overarching allegiance to where the little tiny spot on the globe that you happen to be born, because it was an accident, you could have been born in some other part. And, you know, so they tried to find that one thing that was more permanent that was shared between all of us. And they're like, well, you know, your first allegiance should be to common humanity. And that's just so interesting to think about. And now in relation to the self, that we have all these allegiances to these certain parts about us, but which in a large part just happen to be, they could have been some other way. And so when you start separating, you try to get to this core personal identity. Now you cut off your language, culture, where you happen to be born. What are you really left with? I, I couldn't even imagine an Alex Barrientos that you know, wasn't of Bolivian and Cuban descent and didn't just speak English the way I speak English and wasn't born in my, you know, it's, 
I've become a very different person. And that's, I, I think it's inter- interesting to think about, but also has a lot of moral implications for possibly how we treat others and how we view others. So I, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because I hadn't even thought about the language component. Well, and so that also brings us to the idea of can you have at the same time multiple identities? So again, with the third culture kids, I know plenty that are multilingual and they grew up in different countries and cultures and like my accent can change depending on how much I've drunk and who I'm talking to, you know? So (laughs) does that then make you a different identity at the same time? You know, (laughs) bilingual kids all the time or trilingual, multilingual children, um, they have different personalities based on what language they're speaking in or the community they're in. And I see that even with my daughter, like in English, she's a totally different kid than in Spanish. Well, that, that goes to that, uh, the, the point that the reader had, one of our readers had brought up was, you know, that part that you show others, it doesn't even seem like that's one part. It seems like there's many parts that others get to see of you. Cause I've even had, you know, when I've, I don't speak any other languages, so no one gets to see a different version of that Alex. But, you know, when I've gone to Miami, there's, yeah, I brought one of my friends from out here in Utah down there with me and they're like, oh man, Miami Alex is way different. And I don't, think I'm any different when I'm in a different city, but apparently I am. And so now there, you know, some of my friends say, Oh, we want to see Miami, Alex. You know? And so but, well, and, I'm sorry. Miami, Salt Lake City, okay. I mean, you right? can kind of imagine there would be two versions. But it's certainly not like when I land at Miami International Airport that all of a sudden a new brain is swapped into my head. I'm still the same person, but there's certainly some difference that's taking place that I'm not even on a surface level aware of. And that's, yeah, very interesting to think about. And, and it, it makes it very tough, again, to nail down exactly what is my identity as a person. So. So what's our, what's our takeaway? What, what, what do the ancients, what advice can we get from the ancient world on how to figure out who we are? I will reveal my own bias and I will have to say that I lean towards Marcus Aurelius. And I do for his description, which is, of course, that what is at bottom most important and highest in us is reason. But that reason is shared between all human beings. And so therefore, in a real sense, we all belong to that same one thing, which is reason or for him, you know, it would be God or nature, right? This divine essence that's within all of us. That's really, truly what we are. And that it does, I, for me at least, I don't think it diminishes the accidents that happen to contribute to our personality and what people love and, and maybe don't, don't like about us. But I think it is a good thing to keep in mind when we get hung up on those things and, uh, you know, the defensive mechanisms that arise because of them and whatnot. I think it's a good mechanism to keep in mind. And I'll I'll conclude as well with saying, um, I think that there are many elements and that maybe in regards to Aristotle, that the whole is greater than the sum of of our parts. So we can be many things at the same time as well. And that that as a collective can be. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom modern minds. If you wish to learn more about classical wisdom, please go to classicalwisdom.com.